feels perfect
be more help us be more productive. So the mind is truly a ter- terrible thing to waste, and we do that so often by just running the same race, even if that race is not good for us. So without further ado, um, Rodney, are you on with us? Rodney? Hi, can you hear me? Hi. Yes, we can hear you now. I'm just going to bring you on in so you can get everybody introduced, and we'll go from there. Good evening to all of our listeners. Uh, we are aware that we have uh, new listeners all tonight. We thank you for giving us a part of your evening uh, this Tuesday, May 20th, 2014. I am Rodney Jordan, a school teacher in uh, the state of Virginia. I'm also the author of the book, Tired of Being Black. I'll talk to you more about my book later on, but I am very excited about tonight's guest. I have had the pleasure of uh, talking with her uh, today and on Sunday. Uh, I found out about her um, while just looking at news articles, different news articles, um, last week, and I came across her story, and it just, I don't know, it just fascinated, with, uh, just fascinated me, and, and, and I appreciate appreciated her boldness and just having a, a, a fellow teacher stand up for education, stand up for um, our other teachers across the country, and most importantly for our children. So at this time, we are going to uh, allow Ms. Sarah Wiles to um, tell us a little bit more about herself, and then we're going to get into this uh, this email that she sent to the North Carolina General Assembly, which um, got her uh, a pretty harsh response back from one of her senators, uh, Mr. David Curtis. So uh, Sarah... Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm Sarah Wiles, and I teach high school chemistry and physics in Charlotte. Um, I am finishing up my sixth year of teaching, and I spent about four years, about four and a half, in the Raleigh area, and then my husband and I moved to Charlotte. And I have a bachelor's degree from NC State University in science education, and I have a master's in education and public policy, so it was right up my alley just to start speaking my mind to my legislature. Nothing wrong with that. Um, we love people who speak their mind, especially when they're, when they're telling the truth and standing up for our kids. So let's let's start out with uh, your email. Um, one of the one of the main things that 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 was pointed out um, in your email was that um, you mentioned that you were um, sort of embarrassed to say that you were a school teacher in North Carolina, and you listed um, different reasons. Um, tell us about that. Well, North Carolina is at this pivotal moment where it seems as though our government is trying to privatize education. Um, they call it increasing competition in K-12 education by giving out private school vouchers and funding charter schools and 
so forth. But what that does is it reduces the student population in our public schools, and we get allotments per student. So not only are we missing out on the per student allotment, that money is also leaving the system and going to the charter schools or to the private schools. Um, they've actually argued that that's a savings, but uh, the county commissioners say one thing, the state says another thing. So um, we're kind of at this turning point, and the teacher pay in North Carolina has been frozen for six years. And at one point they even started incorporating, like, lower steps. We're on a step system, and they started incorporating lower steps um, to kind of accommodate these new teachers. Well, Governor McCrory introduced this legislation um, and this bill, and our General Assembly went back into short session last week, and part of that was increasing teacher pay for the beginning teachers, and they started focusing on, okay, well, we lose teachers within the first five to six years. How can we keep them in the system? And not necessarily looking at fixing the systematic problems within our public education system. We have, they're trying to privatize. They're trying to create competition, and competition's great. But what I've said repeatedly is the state needs to realize that you could not in our lifetime, I think we can all agree that we cannot dis dismantle public education in North Carolina or in, in any state. And I think that we can all agree that our public school system is a barometer by which states are deemed economically viable for corporations and for people that are looking to move their companies or their families into that state. So given those two concessions, why the state is not funding its own dog in the fight is just beyond me. This is even more exacerbated in the Charlotte area because for a 30-minute car ride in the morning, you can get paid $5,000 more over the border in South Carolina. So it's just, it's not, the tensions are mounting, especially in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area, because we are a border city and we are a large urban area. So why we can make more by driving 30 minutes to Fort Mill is just, people are driving, people are leaving North Carolina. So you are not the only teacher in the Charlotte area that um, has these frustrations. Oh, not not even <laughs> close. Not even close. But you know what? I think that too much um, attention has been drawn to teacher salaries, and I think that after speaking with my colleagues after my letter hit the press we are all in agreement that there's a reason we want to be paid more, and that's because I have 190 students rostered to my name this year. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, hold on, hold on. You have how many students? 190. So I teach how did you, classes. How, did, how, did you how teach is that 190 possible? students? I don't. I don't teach 190. Um, it's difficult. Like, I... The the problem is is that I fail miserably every day, and I and I don't say that to mean I'm a terrible teacher. I say that because I mean any parent would come up to you and say, "I love my child, I raise my child, I keep my child safe," and there's those moments where you're you just fail, right? And that's just being a reflective adult. 
where you can't be everything and you can't do everything that you want to do. So okay. I have 190 students, and I teach six classes, and that comes out to about 32 kids per class, but I told that to the, my state legislature, and um, Linda Johnson wrote me back and said, well, the state funds a 1 to 26 ratio in the high schools, and I was almost like that made me more mad because I'm like, oh, you're right. I'm, I'm wrong. I don't have 38 kids in one class. You're so right. You fund 1 to 26, so... Of course I'm wrong. <laughs> okay, thank this you is so Tammy. much for reminding have, me. Sarah, I have a question. I'm, I'm still stuck on the 190 students rostered to you. Give us, and you, I, hear, I heard you say six classes, about 32 students per class. How is that that's, possible? I mean, well, that's the average. So, um, the way it works is that we want an 8 day day schedule, which means that every other day you have different classes. We are on a block schedule, which means that we have 90-minute classes. So every day teachers have four periods. They teach three of them. And the 8 day day classes is because we're an international baccalaureate magnet, and so that brings a whole other ball of wax. But that's neither here nor there. I actually am not the extreme high of our class sizes. We have freshman science teachers who have over 200 students rostered to their name. They have freshman science classes with 40 students in them. And that's just the science classes. We're not, that's just the department that I'm in, that I circulate in, that I know intimately. But I, I mean, it, it makes everything more difficult. And the best part was is that senior day was on Friday, so they had the breakfast and the award ceremony. And the juniors were in class. So my class sizes were about half on Friday because the seniors were on at the awards day. And one of the juniors looked at me, and he goes, Ms. Wiles, if, if our classes were this size, everyone would have an A. And I'm like, what are we doing to our children? And that was when it really struck me, like, 38 students isn't difficult for me to manage. It's difficult for them to to learn in. Rodney? Have we lost Rodney? Do you hear me? Yes. Something that I'm sorry about that. And it's not just the, it's not just the teachers who we see a problem with our current system, but our students have an issue with it as well. Very much so. They know, and I said that in my email to the legislature, um, and it actually got thrown back in my face because they didn't interpret the true meaning. The students know. The students know that the North Carolina doesn't care about public education because they're sitting in the classroom with 37 schoolmates. Wow. That, 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 that is just, um, it, it's disappointing that we are doing this uh, to our teachers, but more so that we are doing this to our children. And one of the things that we've talked about um, on the show um, Tammy and I and and, uh, and our listeners over the past few weeks 
is that we have lawmakers who are putting policies into place for public schools, yet their, their children have never been in a public school because they put their children into private schools. Um, so there, there is just a huge problem in, in our schools today, and, and based on what you're telling us, it's not just our teachers who have these frustrations. Our children are frustrated as well. Tell us what um, <laughs> Senator David Curtis has to, has to say about your email. I think um, the listeners will, will really appreciate what he has to say in, in, in regards to your email. Um, do you have the email with you, or do you want me to read the response? Well, you can either read, you can either read the response, or you can just highlight the things that you found the, the, the most disturbing. Uh, I have it, um, but it's totally up to you. What stood, um, out, what stood out the most to you um, in his email? Uh, David Curtis, Senator David Curtis, um, sent me an email that basically, um, I have it in front of me, and it says, uh, he goes on to talk about how influential teachers are, and um, he's concerned that my students are picking up on my attitude and discouragement for teaching and that, he um, then he goes on to say, since you naturally do not want to remain in a profession of which you are ashamed, here are my suggestions for what you should tell your potential new private sector employer. <laughs> and he goes on to say, um, I expect to make a lot more money because everyone knows how poorly compensated teachers are. I expect to have eight weeks paid vacation. I expect to have, um, he, in one of his interviews, he said the Cadillac retirement plan and that um, he, then he goes to quote the cost of living and private sector, and he says that North Carolinian work, North Carolina workers make 87% of the national average, and teachers make 85% of the national average. Um, and then he said it basically talks about how the teachers' unions in North Carolina are giving out flawed information and skewing the public opinion of how teachers are treated. So it's just like it, it's just demeaning in its tone. And honestly, by this time, I, this wasn't the first disappointing email that I had gotten. So I had grown a thick skin. But um, then another one of the legislators had passed it along, and it just kept snowballing. And then it ended up on the news. <laughs> well, so. Uh I was I was um, I was bothered by by his email. Um, I thought your email was very bold, and I thought um, um, and I thought that you spoke for most, if not all, of the teachers um, in the United States. But his email uh, bothered me one because. It showed me that he has no idea uh, what we do every day as teachers. Uh, and then also, um, I thought the tone of his email was kind of rude. 
And for those of you listening, uh, if you have not had a chance to uh, read the um, email exchange between Sarah and Senator uh, David uh, Curtis out of North Carolina, um, if you just go, uh, if you just Google um, uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Walls or um, Senator David Curtis, um, there, there are numerous um, articles that have been written on the story, but I didn't like the I, I did not I did not like the fact that he told you to just go and get another job um, when you said that you were embarrassed. Um, his response to you was, "Well, you should seek out a uh, um, a different job or, or, or find a new employer." And then also, um, teachers are not paid for um, teachers are not you know, are given eight weeks paid vacation. In fact, in fact, I'm sorry. I said, oh, I wish. Yeah, I mean, in fact, no no person in their right mind will say to anyone, hey, take off for two or three months and we're still going to pay you, even if you don't have the vacation time on the book. No employer is going to say that to you. So he has no idea what he's talking about. And if he knew anything about our profession, especially when it comes to our contract, teachers are 10-month employees. The reason why we get paid over the summer is because our 10-month contracts are spread out over 12 months because there, were, there used to be a time where, um, you know, as a teacher you could get all of your money during the school year and not receive any pay during the summer, or you could elect to get paid throughout the summer. So, well, at, in, in Charlotte, we are still 10-month employees. Next year will mark the first time. I, I mean, I don't know if it's the first time. It may have been done in the past. But this month, I'm a 10-month employee. I will not get a paycheck in June or July. Um, next year, we have the option to sign up for 12-month pay, but this year, every CMS employee is on a 10-month pay, and the only way that you can get it on 12-month pay is to arrange a summer savings account with your bank. So it, it, in Charlotte, in CMS right now, we are a 10-month pay. We can elect next year to do differently, but we are a 10-month pay. And it's not so much, like, it keeps coming back to teacher pay, and it keeps coming back to upping our salary. And it, it's not... Um, I think the thing that disturbs me the most is that we're talking about the national average and we're talking about the national income and so forth, but here's, here's the deal. In North Carolina, in order to be in a classroom, you have to be considered, quote, unquote, a highly qualified teacher. That means that you have to be in good standing with your teaching license. That means that you have to have a certification for which you either went to college for or passed a practice exam for. Um, and then every five years or so, you have to get your license renewed by having so many continuing education credits. Well, I have a master's degree, and I have a general science teaching license, and 
I mean, anybody can go online and look. I make $39,500. I turned down a $70,000 private sector position in the pool industry last year to stay in education. So it's in, the, the pay is not commiserate with the workload. That, that is the key that we are not paying attention to. In the past year, six years, it's not that they have simply frozen the pay of North Carolina teachers. It is that they have not only frozen the pay, they have lifted the student-teacher ratio. So in, I think it's third or fourth through twelfth grade, there is no cap on classroom sizes. So they can put as many children in a classroom as they want. And that increases the workload of the teacher. So if you had kept our pay the same, we would have been disgruntled. But then you kept our pay the same and you increased our workload. Tell me where in the private sector someone goes quietly into that good night when their workload is increased and their pay is frozen. If, this, if you change uh, this, your position, this sounds like a story I read in the Bible before with Pharaoh. Pardon me? I said this sounds like something I read in the Bible before with uh, with Pharaoh, what he and what he did before Moses came and, and, and freed the people. Where, where you're you're required to do more, but with less, um, and. To be to, to have a master's degree, and this is your sixth year of teaching, and you're not even making thirty thousand dollars a year. Um, that that's embarrassing, and I don't mean embarrassing for you. That's embarrassing for your state. Um, that is why I am embarrassed to teach in North Carolina. But if I went over to South Carolina today, I could make $45,000. And South this, Carolina this is South only South 20 America. miles away. That's, that, see, that, that, that's not good. And, and I will go ahead and say this um, before we move on. Um, Charlotte, North Carolina, was actually one of the places I considered um, teaching six years ago because I've been teaching uh, – the same length of time that you have. Charlotte, North Carolina is actually one of the places that I was considering um, teaching um, as I was leaving um, undergraduate school. Um, and I looked at Charlotte, and this was six years ago, and it was $33,000. And I said, $33,000? Now, I could have stayed home in Norfolk, Virginia, and made $38,000. And I said, why would I go to Charlotte, which is a much bigger city, and, um, you know, and Charlotte is a fast-growing city in North Carolina. Why would, I, why would I go there when I could stay home and make $5,000 more? And I was ready to leave Norfolk. You know, so for those of you listening, that just kind of, you know, put things into perspective as to where things are in North Carolina. So you can see why uh, Sarah and so many other teachers are frustrated and are embarrassed. And I will go ahead and add this. People comment on 
you know, teachers and the things that we may talk about, but until you walk in our shoes, you have no idea where our frustration comes from. Preach. And, 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 the only thing that keeps us in the profession is our passion to educate kids. Because the lawmakers, the politicians, and so many other people who would not dare write a lesson plan, who wouldn't dare sign up for a parent-teacher's conference to talk to parents who, who are going to come here and, and give you a hard time when you're doing everything you can to help their child who's already five, six grade levels behind, they wouldn't dare step foot in our shoes. No, and that's, that's the thing. It's just I don't hate my job. I love my job. I hate that I have so much job, <laughs> like <laughs> 190 students. I can't, there's no, how do you, how are you affected at that? Like it, it turns into a college classroom and then how many college professors did you have that impacted your life the way your high school teachers did and the way your middle school teachers did? The reason that we don't teach at the college level is so that we can have that impact. The reason we have that impact is because we get to have more interaction and we get to have better relationships with our students. But how how do you have a relationship? How do you carry that? How do you navigate that? And I think that that's where the frustration is with teachers. It's like you're so concerned about us doing our job that you won't let us do our job. Wow, <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of I think a lot of teachers uh, would agree with that. And, and and with that, let's let's jump into uh, something real quick. Um, let's talk about let's talk about education. What what is your definition of education, Sarah? Oh my goodness, um, learning. <laughs> Uh, you and I talked about this earlier today. Um, I think education has to be interesting and it has to be um, productive. So okay. I think that um, we are so formalized in our testing and in the structure and what we think that students should learn that we're not as responsive as we should be to the the times and the society we live in and its needs and responding to the needs of the society in terms of educating our students for it. Um, I think it needs to be productive. I think that there is a lot of education that serves to give kids a lot of book knowledge but not a lot of practical knowledge. Do you do you think that we are um, preparing our children to be productive citizens in our society? Do you think that we're doing that as a whole? Um, 
I think that our public school system does that despite the curriculum in place. Okay. I think that the relationships that we have with students and the conversations we have, and um, one of my administrators frequently uses the phrase code switching, like recognize when you when you have a student that is is going off the rails, you have to talk them into recognizing how to switch. Like I'm not your friend, I'm an authority figure, and you need to navigate that conversation a little bit differently. So I think that the true learning goes on outside of the classroom in terms of our interaction with the children and what we get to impart on them as human beings. Um, I don't think my kids will remember much chemistry in 10 years if their parents were any indicators <laughs> because their parents, they're like, I don't remember this stuff. I just remember it was hard and I didn't like it. <laughs> You have something on your um, on your website. Um, you talk about your philosophy uh, when it comes to learning and grading, and one of the things that 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 stood out to me, and it is something that I try to practice um, as a teacher myself. And so I want you to elaborate on it. But it says in order to increase physical strength, one must sweat a little. In order for students to increase their knowledge and skills, they have to put in a little effort. Um, that quote um, stood out to me um, as I was looking at this on your, on your website. Um, could you expound on that for, uh, for us a little bit? Um. Absolutely. I actually, um, the county mandated that we grade mastery learning. And I'm very literal and I'm very black and white when it comes to policies and procedures. I love policy. I love procedure. I like having that go-to. Um, and so I kind of impart that on my students in terms of how to navigate my classroom and how to navigate chemistry and physics. And the goal is for them to not just to go to lunch and be like, oh, my gosh, I'm in chemistry. It's for them to say, okay, I don't get this, but there's a process that I'm supposed to learn, so I'm going to learn the process, and then I'm going to practice this, and then I'm going to try it in a new situation. And if I fail, Ms. Wiles is going to talk me through where I went wrong, and she's going to be able to look at my work and see, okay, well, you were supposed to put this there, but you put it there instead. And then that's where the learning comes in. It's not so much of I can regurgitate exactly word for word. It's kind of being a reflective learner and being um, not critical of yourself, but being able to to be a reflective person and, critically think about your behaviors and about your performance and evaluate it yourself. And so in my classroom, my students have multiple opportunities. In fact, right now, I actually, <laughs> to show you what teaching is like, I actually have my grade book and my email up right now because my students are doing credit recovery, and it comes to me via email. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually multitasking. Um, and the goal is for them to practice and to try these skills out, knowing that 
you may not become a chemist, and you're, if you go to college, chemistry will probably still be hard despite your co- course in high school. But you have to learn how to tackle those tough situations because when you're going to have to sign a mortgage or do your taxes or get a car <laughs> loan and or learn how to set up an apartment and call the gas company and call the water company, and you have to be able to to jump in and navigate things that are uncomfortable. And I think that that is the skill that they learn or that I hope that they learn. And um, I get a little of pushback because it's their junior or senior year, and it's usually the first math-based science that they've taken. They usually take earth and they take biology and then they take physics or chemistry. And so it's the first time that math meets science, and that's kind of hard on them. Um, but to get them to engage that material, to get them to struggle with the hard things, to get them to persevere, that that is the valuable skill. Hey, this uh, is Tammy. I, I want to jump in. Um, first of all, just to, to kind of talk about the question or answer the question, Rodney, um, I've never been asked that question, what, what do you see education as or, or, or what do you think education is? And as I'm listening to both of your responses, you know, I think about edification, edifying, and teaching our students, our young people, in such a way that they are open and willing to learning in order to master several several topics or subjects to a point to where they get an understanding of who they are and what they'd like to do, possibly like to do in the future. I hear many young people come back and say that they feel as though when they go to school that they're being set up to fail, that it's as if, and even with, with teachers as well, and I know this comes across uh, for many different reasons, but many students feel that they're going to school and the expectation is for me to fail. That's just just how they look at it. Um, so I kind of wanted to just give my opinion on what education is, and the system is not set up so that it allows teachers, in my opinion, to do this because they put them in this in this box and they want everyone to dance to, and like the same music, dance the same way, and pro- progress the same way and, and at the same time. So I want to talk more about that later as we go as to what can we do because we have power that we are not stepping into as parents, as concerned citizens. We're giving... Senators, um, and, and, and I'm not. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna call him senators. I'm gonna, like David. We're giving pe- people <laughs> like him too much power. I'd like to ask you this, Sarah. A couple of things. Did he respond to you after the letters and his response after it went viral? Was there any re- additional response to you from David? There was no direct response from David. To me, after it went viral, um, he and I both got interviewed by the media in North Carolina, and he stood by what he said, and he, he that was when his comment about the Cadillac retirement plan came out and that he thinks that teachers' unions have tainted a disproportionate view of the treatment of teachers, which is ironic because unionizing is illegal in our state. So um, <laughs> not sure what union he's talking about. But um, 
it's just he never responded, and I don't expect a response. I don't expect any um, anything from him. Honestly, like that's a pretty blanket statement, but that's pretty blanket. I don't expect anything from David. You know, I wonder, and then I I wonder what would David uh, want for his if he has a daughter um, who has or had a master's uh, bachelor's degree, master's, and who had worked for six years. What would he want her to make as a teacher? And you mentioned that you make thirty nine five a year, and it's so important that you guys bought up the salary or, or how teachers are paid because many people don't understand that teachers are, yes, they're off in the summertime, but you guys bought up the fact that when you are paid, if a teacher is paid in the summertime, then that's not money that the system is giving the teachers. This is money that has been allotted, taken out, has been stretched out so that they can receive a check for that time that they're off. So important for you all to know that. And then I want to read one thing, and you may have seen this, Sarah, but this is a response um, that came from someone about your article and the response to it. And it says, since many people consider that teachers are nothing more than babysitters, I suggest that we pay them the same as we pay babysitters. I don't know the going rate for babysitters in North Carolina, but here in Maryland it's about $5 per hour per kid. So for 30 kids in a classroom times six hours per day times a 180-day school year, that works out to a salary of 162000 per year. Even if the rate in North Carolina is $2.50 per hour per kid, that still works out to be $81,000 per year. I'll bet every teacher in North Carolina would love to be paid like a babysitter. <laughs> I know I would, and I don't even teach in North Carolina. Oh, my. Don't, don't tell me to become a babysitter now. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. I said go ahead. Yeah, it's just um, I actually had not seen that response yet. Um, but I mean, I don't even know how to respond to that. There's a lot of <laughs> moments that I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> But then there's these cute moments where, like, my student came up to me today, and she and I, like, I went tough on her. Like, it's tough love. I'm like, I'm, I don't want you to, to, to cuddle up next to me and act cute. I want you to get to work. <laughs> and then afterwards, she's just like, thank you so much. I know you're just trying to get me to do what I needed to do. And I was like, oh. So, um. I don't know, is it selfish that as a teacher, like, the warm, fuzzy moments, it's like, okay, well, the warm, fuzzy moments are great, but then, like, on the flip side, I get called an effing bee on the regular, and, I mean, the words that fly out of these kids' mouths, it's just, and then, I mean, how do you fight that battle? So, I just, there's battles that, there's so many battles, there's so many battles. And, it, and you could make the same argument for a stay-at-home mom. It's the same thing. It's like stay-at-home moms get a bad rep, and they're always fighting about, like, 
what would we be if we were an actual profession, quote unquote? Um, and it's the same thing. It's it's all about how much you say you care about your kids. How much money are you willing to put towards it? Rodney? I think we keep losing him for some reason. Rodney? Okay, we'll give him a minute um, to come to come back in. Actually, yeah, we did lose him, so we'll give him a minute to call back in, and there he is. Rodney, are you there? Well, I'm going to have an event that uh, keeps uh, happening. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um. But I, I, I did hear uh, Sarah mention uh, the name that she's been called. Um, if you don't mind, Sammy, let's talk about uh, some of the language that is being used by our children today. Um, are you okay with that? Absolutely. Um, Sarah, you teach in a predominantly um, Black era, correct? Uh, um, black well, area, right? We, I, we are not. We're called urban. We're considered an urban school, which means that we have an incredibly diverse population. I actually couldn't tell you our figures, okay. but our student body is diverse. Okay. Do you? I teach in an urban you, school. Do you hear the N word used? Um, at your school? I hate the N-word. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, and I fight my students tooth and nail on it, which is actually really uncomfortable because I am a white woman, and I am European descent. I am a white woman, and I just light these kids up about this word. Like, I have yelled at them about that two-fifths of a human being that's property, that is something that is bought and sold, that is something that if it is useless, it is discarded. And it nothing, it doesn't click with them. It doesn't register with them. And one of them actually looked at me today and said, it's just a habit. I can't, I can't stop it. It's habit. And I'm like, get rid of it. Like, fight the habit. <laughs> What do you initially uh, think about or what comes to mind when you hear your students use this word? Ignorant. I don't think that they understand what that word means. I don't think that they know what the fight was and what the struggle was in this country, and I don't think that they know what people went through because of that word. And... I, it, it's just appalling that, I mean, it's difficult to engage with the debate, one, because I'm a white woman, and two, because uh, Oprah one time said that they own that word, or I don't, like, I think that that was something that was said because she's debated this topic as well, but the frequency with which these students use the F word, the N word, and call each other these and just it, the, the frequency with which they use derogatory language to describe other humans, that saddens me because that means that they don't respect each other. And I, mm. that's, that's a society problem and that's 
I think they don't have their their school environment is safe, but it's not nurturing because they they're herded in there like cattle. Like there's 40 kids in a classroom, 40 kids. Like what are we supposed to do with 40? 14 and 15 year olds in a classroom. <laughs> that sounds like punishment. <laughs> you're, you're, supposed, you're, you're supposed to play Jeopardy. Oh, yes, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and then, like, I don't know. There's just so many battles that are so much bigger than me that I speak out against it. I don't tolerate it in my class. I throw kids out of my class for it, but I mean, it's more of doing my part. Um, we were talking about it today with the vocabulary and the word and the, the profanity and what we as adults see that they may not see. And then um, we were just talking about the culture and the environment that we're creating for these kids. And we just we're seriously robbing them of something. There are caring educators out there that can't afford to educate because they have to support a family. My father got a master's degree in education from the Columbia University in New York, and he never taught a day in his life because he had to support a wife and two children. And he had a passion for it, and he couldn't do it because he couldn't afford it. If we could get caring adults, if all we had to do was pay money to get caring adults in students' lives, what would that do? It's a good question. Do you um, all – there is a – this is Tammy. Do you do – you, is there a solution to, um, number one, the pay? If so, what do we do and why didn't we do it last week? I'll say that. Why didn't we start last year, years ago? So it, do you feel, both of you are teachers, um, you're in different areas um, and probably some way dealing with some of the same things. Is there a solution? Talk to our parents. Talk to the person next door with no children who feels as if um, my kids are grown, gone, this is not my issue, talk to Mr. David. Um, is there a solution? I'll let, I'll let uh, Sarah respond, and then, and, and then I'll um, weigh in on it. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, actually, we talked about it today, and we talked about the solutions that – we think should be in place, but it's one of those things where it feels like David versus Goliath. So um, in terms of pay, I don't know the state budget. I don't know how much it costs to maintain state roads. I don't know how, like, I don't know. Like, so to speak to the dollars and cents of it is above my pay grade because I don't know income taxes and dot, 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 dot. Um, but I do know that we need to start looking at the cost-benefit analysis. What we, We're willing to go into debt as a nation and as individual states for so many things. Why 
why does education get backburnered? And then why are we crippling education but then coming down on teachers for what's going on? And it's like I get so many thankful students and parents and the community is so supportive of education in where I live and where I work. But how how is it so much that I've run into so many people that are so supportive and so thankful of what I do, but then when it gets to the government, there's a disconnect. Like, I don't understand what bridge broke. I, I, I'm good. I, I, I'm with you. Um, here's what I, here's what I think when it comes to when it comes to to salaries being being the overall issue. I think teacher pay. Um, I think raises are just a small part of the of the problem. And 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 here's why I say this. When when you think about it, teachers are paid uh, based on tax dollars. It's not like we're uh, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, or uh, the MLB. Uh, we're not these professional. Um, you know, we're not we're not these professional uh, sports organizations where, you know, millions, billions of dollars are generated every year. Um, so we're not getting paid based on revenue where people are spending, you know, two, three hundred dollars, thousands of dollars for for a ticket to a game. So we're we're paid based on 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 tax dollars. Well, my teacher friends and I have a great solution for that, and that was it recently made headlines that the city of Charlotte is renovating Time Warner Cable Arena for the Bobcats or the Charlotte Hornets. They're now back to the Hornets, right? right. <laughs> and yeah. we were like, yeah, instead of the city paying for the professional sports team to come, this professional sports team should have to pay the city. Wouldn't that be great? Because we're, we're the, like, then if they paid the city, the larger cities would get more money for to spend on education. And not that the, the Bobcats and the Panthers are incredibly supportive of CMS schools. So, but that was just our joke. <laughs> like, we should just turn it around. I, I was talking to uh, I was talking to my girlfriend earlier. Um, <laughs> funny thing, um, I got an email today from from a lady who I was on her show um, back in October, and she wanted me to pay um, to write devotionals for uh to to write stories for devo- for a devotional she was trying to do. And my girlfriend said, wait a minute. You're supporting her, you're supporting her work, you're writing these stories. She's probably go- going to make money off of them. But you have to pay her. She's not going to pay you and I said, 
unless the meeting was emailed incorrectly, that that's exactly what she said. And she said, "Oh no, oh, oh no." Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, and I have to, uh, Sam and Tammy, I have to take these uh, comments, um, Tammy, unless you object. I'm getting a lot. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of uh, messages. Uh, is that okay? Oh yeah, that is perfectly fine. All right. Um, I won't say any names um, unless they tell me it is okay to say names, but. Um, one teacher says that maybe teachers should be recruited like players in the NFL or the MLB. Maybe salaries should be should be negotiated just like they are in these professional organizations. Um, and that is from um, a teacher. Um, and also, there was another comment that says, um, <laughs> I am so thankful for teachers like you all. Keep doing what you do um, from your heart. So teachers, so, so there are people, um, and tell me, um, again, I'm not, go, I'm not going to say names unless they say, hey, it is okay to say my name. Um, but tell me, going back to something that you said, uh, tonight and in the, in the past few weeks, just because your child, your children, are no longer in school does not exempt you. It doesn't mean that you are not a part of this fight anymore. Um, and, and, and the person, and, and, and she's probably going to laugh when, when I say this, but the person who made the comment about uh, negotiating the salaries and recruiting teachers like we do these these athletes, um, her name is Cindy Matia, um, and, and I knew she would not uh, mind me saying her name, but uh, Sarah, she's just like you. Uh, science is her passion. Um, she loves to teach science. Um, she's all about science. Um, but she was the one who made the comment about about the salary. So uh, thank you, Cindy, for, for, for chiming in. Um, I'll pause right here in case Sarah or Tammy, you want to jump in. I want to jump in about what you just said about um, getting everyone involved and, and having everyone to see why. I'd like to share, in my opinion, why this is important for those people who feel that it's not my issue anymore. My my child is grown and gone. I've did my due. Um, but we are, as, as Sarah and I think Rodney said as well, and we said many times on here, we are seriously doing our children um, a disservice. We're doing our communities, um, this, this, this world, a disservice because we are sending, a, well, we are not preparing students to be adults, and in their minds, they're going to certainly feel like I am an adult, and as an adult, I'm expected and should be able to do this, um, feed myself, clothe myself, and all these things. And when they're not able to, because we have some very smart young people. I mean, the, these young babies come here with, with so much more um, 
than we did, and it continues to just grow beyond that. So when we are not equipping equipping them for this world, the anger, as you all can see as teachers and in whomever, just in, in the world today, you can look at the news, the anger that is setting within these, these kids who are going to be adults one day. And if not you, if they don't get you to feed themselves or their families, if it's not you that they rob, if it's not your house that they break in, it just very well be your children, your grandchildren, and whomever else. So we think it's not our issue. It's it's like the commercial that, and I've said this many times too, the the bus driver who is sitting out on the front porch smoking whatever it is he's smoking, he's getting high. And the, it says, but this is not your problem. But it shows this same person driving up on the school bus to pick your child up or your children up. So it is your problem. It is our problem. And to deny it or to turn your head from it is not does not mean it's going to go away. So, again, I'm, I challenge our listeners, get involved. Get involved tonight on this show. Tell us what you're going through. Start something. Start something in your schools. Number one, treat our teachers better. Parents, do better. Um, teachers, I, I've, I've been in the school system in North Carolina and the school system in Georgia and in Florida. There are some teachers just that really need to go away. And there are some, some people that, like Sarah, your father, who never got a chance to come in because he had a family that he needed to feed. So it goes both ways. Kudos are the ones who stay like you guys do regardless. And I say to the others who really you just can't find your way to be there and don't care, find your way out. But the ones who stay, we need to take care of you guys more. And ladies, we need to take as my son is grown and gone. But th- I see this as my issue as well. So, again, I'm asking everyone, what can we do to fix this? How do we uh, how do we address Mr. David's response to your letter? You know, so that's what I have for right now. Sir, do you have, do you have a response? Um, if not, we're going to uh, we're going to jump into something that uh, you brought to my attention and. Um, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, do you have a, a, a response right now, or would you like to move on? Let's let's keep going. Let's move on. All right. So, um, at HBCUs, and um, I, I have come to 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 know that many people do not understand what. Uh, HBCUs are, or what um, HBU stands for, HBCU stands for, and it stands for uh, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And at Elizabeth City State University, which is also um, in the state of North Carolina, um, on the other side of the state uh, from where uh, Sarah teaches, um, because it is at the um, northeastern uh, side of uh, North Carolina. But at Elizabeth State University, which is an H- HBCU, 
the graduation rate is 43%. That's so less, less than half of um, less than half of the and this is not just students who are graduating in four years for the bachelors. This study goes further than that. This is giving this is giving students six years to graduate. So less than so less than half of the students at Elizabeth City State University um, are graduating with within six years. Um, and we talked uh, before about how there are so many programs um, in our public schools that are supposed to increase minority achievement. Um, yet we're sending so many African Americans, uh, boys and girls, off to college, and then most of them are dropping out before um, they complete their freshman and sophomore year. So why do you think um, so many of our minority students, especially our African-American students, just are graduating at these HBCUs? Why do you think that is? Oh, man. Um, I, I've actually got the article up in front of me, and it's talking about um, – it brings up the fact that a lot of these students, 70% um, of students come from families with low enough incomes to qualify for federal Pell Grants. So um, you're talking about the, the interesting thing now is um, I actually had a conversation about this with one of my administrators. There's a shift in education away from minority students being a, an ethnicity and we're talking more about the socioeconomic discrepancies. So the while they are linked, um, you're talking about students who have come from low socioeconomic backgrounds who are minority students and who are less likely to get into or less likely to come from these affluent high schools. So let's let's talk blanket statements here. Let's talk generalizations, knowing full well that they are generalizations and there are exceptions to everything and that you cannot make one statement that applies to all schools. But let's talk about this. Let's talk about Wake County and let's talk about Raleigh. They used to be forced integration where they had the 40% rule where it was integration based on socioeconomic status. There was a book written um, by a professor out of Syracuse called Hope and Despair in the American City, Why There Are No Bad Schools in Raleigh. And he compared Syracuse schools to Raleigh schools and said the reason Syracuse schools are so bad is because they are neighborhood schools and the less affluent areas of Syracuse get the worst teachers because the schools do not get the attention that the more affluent schools do. So Raleigh combated that problem. And when I started teaching seven years ago, six years ago, in Raleigh, 
there were no bad schools. Like, it, there were schools that were more urban, but there were no schools that were like, oh, my goodness, you don't want to go to that campus at night. Um, and part of that was because of the forced integration. Well, then when the school board changed over and they started doing neighborhood schools, the NAACP actually sued Wake County Public School System for segregation. And knowing full well that if they did that, it would cause this decline of these schools. So the integration of schools and the, the balance of the student population is, is pivotal for students to be successful, but that's because they need to be to see success. If you keep people in low socioeconomic statuses in their bubble, in their neighborhood, in their, whatever, in their area, then they don't see the success and they don't know how they can achieve it because maybe they don't have a role model in their life or any adult that they come in contact with that has walked their walk and come out the other end. The best thing that we have is faculty that came from low socioeconomic status, went to HBCUs, graduated, and now are serving their community by serving in the school system, inspiring and following and hounding and begging these, these students, these minorities, these low socioeconomic kids to, to, to go for it and to do better, even though it's harder. So what I think is happening is that there's, it's twofold. One, that there's the outset um, platform where what you come out of is what you're most likely to return to. And the other is that the focus isn't on these students. The government is not focusing on these students and what they need. They are focusing on the headlines. They want to boast the 80% graduation rate. They want to boast the minority graduation rate. They want to boast the success of their minority students. They want to boast the success of their students. But we have gotten so large and so crowded, and uh, we've removed the cap on our classroom sizes, that these students are what I it goes back to the same vein of problems. These students get lost. It is actually the fight every day, and our administration is really intentional about this, that somebody on campus has to know these kids because you have to fight to know these kids because if all else fails, you have 190 kids, there's no way you can know all of them. There's only 180 school days. I can't even spend a day with every child in my class. <laughs> so, like, literally 180 school days, I cannot physically spend one day with every child in my classroom because I ran out of days. But you're getting into this issue where education is no longer about the students. It's about money. It's about making headlines. It's about percentages. It's about passing them. It's about getting them through. It's about so many other things um, other than students. And somebody asked me when this, when this all came to the head, they were like, what do you, my, my, one of my dear friends, Amanda, she looked at me and she's like, what is, what's your dream? And I said, my dream is to work in education where every conversation benefits a student. I'm so sick of conversations that have nothing to do with kids. So, 
when you're talking about the budget and when you're talking about HBCUs and when you're talking about minorities, there's a person that is going to this. There's a person who's coming from a low socioeconomic status. There's a person who's coming from a one-parent house. There's a person who's coming from a minority family who has never seen success and who has, they're going to be the first person to graduate high school. That's good enough. Why should they graduate college? Like, they went to high school. They got out of high school, like, through the front door with a diploma in hand, and they made it into college. So what's the big deal? They already made the hurdle. And they that's that the key that we're missing in education. That's the moment we're missing. And there's a huge cohort of teachers who are just scared to death. And, I mean, uh, frankly, it's not a a very comfortable situation for me because I don't know that. I'm a middle-class white woman. Like, I am the poster child of vanilla America. I have two hardworking parents that are college-educated and they are a nurse and they are a contractor and they were were very, very solidly middle class and I can't speak to, I feel, especially with the racial tensions that are still in play, it's difficult for me to speak to that because the rebuttal from people has always been, you don't know. So why should you care? And and the fact is is that we all should care. We should all be concerned. We should all care. But caring looks like listening. And I think that there's there's a defensive position on both sides where I my mm-hmm, there's a side that wants to defend themselves from attack, and then there's a side that wants to defend themselves from being assumed and stereotyped. And if we can all drop our defenses and start having honest conversation and saying, what do you need that you don't have? What was it like? What is it like? Why is it that success is so close to you that but you don't attain it? What's the difference? That would be a conversation that I would love to sit at a table and have. I, I, I said this to you earlier. Um, and, and, and I will say to you again, if I ever um, start my own school, please, 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 um, do come and work there. Because, <laughs> because we need more people like you uh, that are willing to have these honest conversations, that are willing to seek out solutions, and you and I are um, at opposite ends of the uh, of the spectrum, so to speak. You are a uh, white female. I'm a black male. However, um, our views are very similar, and it, it, it is really time for us to have honest conversations when it comes to our children. It really, it really is time for um, every conversation to be about our children. It really is time for education 
to become a profession where we are we are about educating more so than schooling. I because completely right, agree. Because right, because right now we're schooling kids, which is not a whole lot different than housing kids. You know, right right now we're providing kids with transportation um, back and forth to school um, in, in most parts of the country. Right now, um, depending on what you put on, um, you know, your lunch form, we will give you, you know, something to eat for breakfast, something to eat for lunch. But we're not giving our children the skills and the tools they need uh, to be these productive members of society. And the, the, the system is actually set up to where if you cannot get it at the drop of a dime, you are going to be lost. Because we no longer teach for mastery. Um, we, 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 we don't teach so that our children can not only function in elementary school, but they can function in middle school, they can function in high school, they can function in college, they can function in the military, they can function as husbands, they can function as wives. We don't teach for that anymore. We we I agree. Teach, we teach so that whatever we say, whatever we do, it looks good on paper and it sounds good at school board meetings, it sounds good at city council meetings and just like we, we, we said in the past, the the people who are impacted the most, the people who suffer the most can do the least about the situation, and that is our children. Um, Sarah, go ahead. I think you wanted to jump in and then tell me. I think we have a caller. Yes, we have a caller. Okay. Uh, Sarah, go ahead and then uh, we'll take the caller. Okay, we're going to pull in a caller from the 757 area code with the last four digits of 1665. Caller, you're on the air with us. Thank you for calling. Hi, my pleasure. Uh, this is Leon. Um, i like to say that I've enjoyed the, the conversation so far. Um, different points of views, but you guys are harmonizing in your concerns and education, and, and that speaks volumes to no matter what part of the country you're in, no matter what background you come from, the concerns that you guys have are the same across the board, and that really speaks volumes that really heightens that awareness. I think it should in all of us, and uh, I really appreciate the dialogue and the conversation so far, and thank you guys for that. Thank you. Um, thank you. You're, you're welcome. Uh, I wanted to speak a little bit about the the graduation rate from historically black schools. I am myself an alumni of Elizabeth City State University. Uh, back coincidence of this conversation today. Um, I am no, and I like to give this disclaimer, in no way am I 
justifying the graduation rates. But I, I would like to, to bring out a couple of points. I, I think that Elizabeth City probably falls in the same dilemma that most colleges, a lot of colleges fall into. Um, and it's a, in my mindset, my definition is it's a for-profit approach to education is what it looks like to me from the outside looking in. I think every school has a mission goals, but I don't know how strong their retention goals are. So I think they push hard to get students in, and we recruit, and we're at every high school event, and we're, we're inviting your high school seniors into our campuses, and we push hard to get students admitted into the school, but I don't know how much we really support them once they're there. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest concerns that we have. But when, I, when, we, uh, when, when Rodney brought up the point of the 43% completion rate and, uh, of Elizabeth City State University, which is a historically black school, and you compare that to what I believe, I'm not for sure about this, but, but I believe the tradi traditional non-HBCU schools is graduation rate is somewhere in the 50% range. And I think when you compare... Uh, the opportunities and the impact of most HBCUs, that 43% is not far off from the 59% that traditional schools uh, are graduating students. I say that when I compare the fact that HBCUs give students second opportunities. They will accept students that have traditionally lower SAT scores or ACT scores or, or lower GPAs versus some non-traditional schools that unless you have a 3.5, 3.4, 3.3, that you won't even be considered into admission into their schools. And I think, um, I think that makes a huge difference. But HBCUs, HBCUs will, some, will give students that sometimes even have a criminal background an opportunity at education to, make, to redeem themselves to make a positive impact, impact on society. I think about my own personal uh, my own personal story. Uh, I come from a family of two parents, neither of which graduated from high school. Um, and I never like to play the blame game, but in high school, my GPA was a 2.5, 2.7. I was admitted into Elizabeth City State University on a football scholarship. When I was admitted there, I had a lot of educational influence, educational influence that I didn't have in my house. I got a lot of other influences in my house, but not the educational influence. I graduated Elizabeth City State University with a 3.2, and I went on to get my MBA at a 4.0. And I make that point to say HBCU gave me an opportunity that I wouldn't, gotten, I wouldn't have gotten at any other school to allow me to mature to get in an environment that was positive and, and to really get that educational influence that I needed because I didn't have the luxury of having it every day in my household. And I think when you compare that impact, and that happened to me and it's happened to thousands all across this country that have been given that second chance, I think when you compare that 43% to traditional schools which are graduating at 59%, I think that impact is very great. And I think there is a lot of room for improve, improvement. There is a lot of room for um, change in the way that we support students once we get them admitted into schools across the board. But I, I just wanted to bring out that point of when you compare that and the impact that HBCUs make, I think, I think it really worth saying is worth hearing. 
especially is a good point to bring out because a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, people that would argue the point that there is no need to have HBCUs in them anymore. There's no let's just bring them into the state system. Let's just pull away the, the tradition that they have and the standards that they have and the qualifications with, uh, in the the criteria in which they accept students. So I think that's that's a point worth bringing out. I think it's still much needed, and I am a uh, a, a very um, high supporter of uh, historically black schools, and uh, I'll continue to be. But thank you guys for your time today. Sorry if I was a bit long-winded. No, that's a great point. No, I just said great points. I mean, very interesting, and, and we're glad that you, you know, brought the attention to that. So great information, and thank you. Go ahead, Rodney. Um, Leon, are you still there? I'm here. Okay. Um, what, what did you say to the media and and all of the people who uh, who believe that HBCUs will be uh, either done away with or start to lose um, federal funding if the graduation rates uh, do not increase. What what do you think about that, or, or what do you have to say? About that, about that concern. I, I, I think it. I think it is a concern. I don't think it, it. I don't think it should be a cause for elimination. It, it. It should be a need to that that we are more heavily regulated. I think we need. I think we need standards. I think we need guidelines. I think we need goals to follow. I think we need checks and balances, because uh, Elizabeth City is at forty three percent. I. I. I have I've seen uh, kind of snippets from the article that you guys are referring to. Elizabeth City's at 43 percent, and that's one of the highest when you think of the rates among historically black schools. There are some that are in the teens, so I think it is a a need for concern. It should light a fire under us, but the need to eliminate it I don't I don't see, I don't see the need to eliminate it. I think it, I think there are. Uh, Mitigating things that we can do. There, there are regulation things that we can do to give to raise the bar and to to improve it. Um, I think I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, sure. I I take it as a charge to the public schools. Mm-hmm. Like for me, historically, black colleges and universities are important for my students because they mean so much to my students. Like, yeah. it is where their parents went. It is where their grandparents went. It is, I mean, I went to North Carolina State, and if my children think that they are going to UNC, they are far, far from the truth. But, like, it's, it's people can get passionate about schools. That's, that's, the, that's what breeds the generations upon generations of college education and success. And I think that doing away with HBCUs is the same thing as doing away with community colleges. Yes, community colleges will never be competitive with Division One A uh, elite universities, the the best um, on U.S. News and World Report. But they have their place and they serve their students. And I think that that is 
what we need to focus on is who are our students and how are we serving them. And then it needs to go to the legislature and it needs to say, here are students that graduated from your state. They graduated from your public education system. They graduated from what you are boasting is one of the best times in education in the history of our country. What what are let's let's connect reality with the numbers. And that's that's my goal in in writing the email that I wrote two weeks ago in this conversation. I wanna open up that dialogue. I want I want more conversations like this to take place where we're looking at students and what makes them successful and what we think makes them successful and looks great on a headline but is really just lip service. So I'm, a, I'm so glad you called in. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, 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 would, I would like to add that tradition plays a huge part in HBCUs. I, I think what, what almost counters tradition, what counters tradition in a big way is that once you get in the job market as an HBCU graduate, you are not as marketable as many others. Yeah. And that causes me personally to struggle with making the decision to send my my son who will graduate in five years to a historically black school. Not because I am not in love with this tradition, but I am not in love with the fact that I know coming from corporate America that he is not as marketable. From coming from the hiring end of corporate America, he is not as marketable as a HBCU graduate as a student who may have gone to another traditional traditional school, non-HBCU school. Um, that's the part that that I think needs to be in the focus of of, of the university. Um, it's, it's a legislative uh, concern to address to make sure there's equality across the board. But that's also a uh, an issue that the colleges have to address to make themselves more marketable, to show the uh, the alumni success that they produce, to make that visible to corporate America, to make it visible to the public, to attract more uh, students in, to attract more businesses to hire their their graduates. Um, those are those are probably two of the biggest concerns that I see with HBCU is support once you get students admitted into the university, and then it's the marketable piece to make students, um, to make graduates of, of historically black schools more marketable once they get out in the job market. I, I, I would like to add this, um, and, and, and Leah, I'm still on the line uh, for a second, uh, but I would like to add this um, as a teacher. Um, I've never worked in the corporate world, um, but I do know um, as a teacher when most schools send recruiters, whether it be teachers, administrators, support staff, central office personnel, whoever they send out to um, recruit new teachers, usually they do not go to HBCUs. And I had a conversation with a parent yesterday, and we talked about this very, this very same thing. And she said, 
Well, why is that when most of your students are minorities? Why is it that uh, teachers are not recruited from these minority institutions? And I said, I really don't have, I really don't have an answer for that. But we went into uh, many different things, and we don't have that much time tonight. But the, uh, the article that Michael Jordan uh, put out, I think it was last week or the week before, where he talked about how he was racist towards all white people growing up. And I can relate to that because I was that way. I, I came up that way where I was racist towards all white people. I'm not that way today. But that's how how my childhood was, and so if you think about that, um, most of your uh, faculty and staff in schools today are white women, and it doesn't matter whether they're in a rural area or whether they're in an urban area. It doesn't matter where they are. Most of your staff are white women. And so when you have these uh, black males, you have this huge disconnect, and no one can figure out why um, our black males have the lowest test scores. I know personally, as a black male teacher, I get tired of... Uh, hearing and seeing that black males have the lower scores in reading, black males are scoring lower in reading than Hispanic males. And English isn't even their primary language. Yes. But we're born here, and our scores are lower, and no one can seem to figure out what the problem is, and, and, and I don't know who will get to uh, dive into this tonight, but we have all of these professional development training seminars and workshops that many people um, say that they're, they're useless because no one is really addressing the real issues. No one is addressing the real issues. And so... We're having we have this large achievement gap, and we can't figure out why. And feel free anyone to to comment or, or ask any questions about that. But I uh, but I felt the need to to put that out there. You know, Rodney, this is Tammy, and it, what you guys have talked about, you've made me think about, and I don't know exactly where the school you brought this uh, to our attention. I believe. Uh, during the last show we did about the school, I believe, in New York, where there was just one student who passed the their testing, the yearly testing. It Was that recent? Wasn't that you that bought that? That was, that was, uh, that was last week um, where there was a school last year um, in Harlem and only one student passed the math test. In the entire school. In the entire school. 
That's a problem. <laughs> Sarah Leanne, any, any comment, questions? Uh, no, I mean, I mean you, you, you bring up great points. Um, and and I, I would have to say from my conversation with my colleagues and my, my friends that are African-American males, even those that have a desire to teach, the reason that they don't teach is one of the concerns that you guys brought up earlier, which is the, the financial concerns, the salary concerns. And and if there is a a lack of of uh, of available resources of of African American male influence in the education in the public education system, one of the biggest influences is probably the fact that we don't graduate at the rate at at as most others, and also the fact that those of us who do graduate are, are not motivated much by the incentives that education that the educational system offers. And, and I, I say that among the people that I've talked to, that that would be the concerns for most of them when it comes to the education system and why they don't choose to take those career paths. Mm. Yeah, that's it seems to me that uh this is the way that the people like David, um, this is exactly the way that they want it. As you mentioned, Rodney, you know, these are people who are making decisions for the, the school system, basically, but their children and their grandchildren will never set foot in a public school. So, Sarah, you there? <laughs> Yeah. You guys are quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did hear my talking, but I thought that you might want me to shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. We, we do not want you to shut up. This, this, uh, this show uh, was sparked by, by your boldness and by your courage. And I'm telling you, I, I have not stopped talking about you, Sarah, uh, ever since um, I read your article. So. No, please, by by no means, do not shut up. We we would love to everything that uh, that you have to share. And I'm I'm getting comments. I'm telling you, I'm getting comments. Uh, people are really enjoying uh, listening listening to you. So uh, go ahead. Well, I somebody to come down here and help me with my students. No, that's all. Um, I. It's just nice to be able to have open dialogue and open um, conversation without any assumptions and without any defenses. And that's not something, even though most teachers are white women, it's, we're in a very difficult position because there's a lot of things that we can't say and there's a lot of it, places we can't go and things that we can't talk about. So... It's it's difficult. It's kind of being stuck between a rock and a hard place, and it's just I think that that's what we actually that's a bigger issue that we need to combat in our society. Society is just we can we need to learn how to talk about difficult things mm-hmm. because not everybody is on our path. 
Like, what, what's the rules? And so I think that, like, the, the, the sentiment is that because we don't know the rules of the game, we avoid the game. And I can tell you that I have fantastic relationships with my children, and we were at prom Saturday night, and they are fabulous, fabulous human beings, and I love them dearly. And they think I'm that crazy white lady. And so <laughs> I just play that card and roll with it. And um, But when we start talking about minorities and their success in the classroom and we talk about HBCUs, it's, I want so much to reach out and help, but I don't want them to think that I presume that because they are black or because they are low socioeconomic status or because they are immigrants or whatever may be the case that they have, they fall into this certain category. This is Tammy. I want to jump in. And, you guys, we have several callers. So I know that 501, you've been out there for a minute. We're going to get you then. We have one from the 571 area code as well. So I'll be really, really quick. We have about 15 minutes to go. But, you know, it's like, example, the N-word we you find within our community i'm i'm a 46 year old black woman and you hear people of the black race using the n word with each other but let um sarah say that word and just because of her skin color it it takes on a whole other meaning so i understand what she's saying and again i commend you sarah because just that letter alone regardless of how david and the others perceive this letter or respond to you it has created tonight it has it, it has gone to having a, a a very much needed conversation dialogue that we need to discuss to get over those differences we don't deal with the truth society has gotten us to a point where we don't deal with the truth so that we can better communicate and build relationships that edify us that allows us to learn and understand each other and go from there. So if nothing else, before tonight's show getaway, I want to commend you for standing up, writing the letter. I also heard you say you wish someone would come down and help you with the kids, your kids. We'd like to talk to you about that. I would because there are people in your area that are kind of doing what what we do, and maybe if you could get them in the door um, to talk with some of the kids um, have men who look like those young men who have over, overcome those obstacles, something that they can identify with and see themselves getting out of and through their current situation. So let's bring our call in, if, if you don't mind. Um, 501 Absolutely. area code with the last four digits of 7657. Thank you, because I know you've been holding on a, a, a long time. So 501 area code, you're on the air with us, and thank you again. Hey, Timmy, uh, can you hear me right now? Yes. All right. How you doing? I, I was just calling. I was listening to the to the show, and I was just curious. I know uh, y'all were just discussing about the kids not uh, really checking into education. They don't see the benefits of education. And our other point you was talking about was is that uh, with a lot of students not being being receptive of uh, other colors as far as teacher wise. Uh, am, am I correct by saying that that's what some of the discussions y'all are having right now? Yes, we've hit on a couple of things. Yeah, that's those yeah. Are some well, of the things I'm, I'm, as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the show kind of late, so I'm just making sure that okay, I was okay. I, I was listening to the right. 
right right thing. I think uh, one of the reasons that we fail in the education system is that we're not giving the kids the responsive information to see the benefits of success as far as education-wise. I think that's where one of the things that we're failing at because when you educate kids, when we're educating the kids is that we're saying get educated, but we're not showing them the benefits of it. I'm 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 a graduate from from uh, from HBCU, and uh, and I graduated back in 2000. But the downside of going to HBCU was that one of the things that we set our standards so low, the school did, that it failed us in the long run. Uh, a lot of places wouldn't even look at us because the standards were set so low, and then we wonder why we couldn't get out there in the job market. And then with a lot of uh, teachers that we had, uh, some of them just they just didn't care. And our students pick up on things like that, especially younger kids. They pick up on a lot of things like that. So I, I think that the men in, in, in the community it, within itself, the women are doing their part for, for the majority of it. But I think the men are where the, the slacking and the failing part is, and the, and the good men haven't stepped up. We're still being cowards right now. We're, we're still not doing our part, and I think that's what we're failing at, is, is that we need to get out there and be more active and be more productive and show them if, we do go, if you do get educated, this is the benefit of it. Because right now, I think the streets are getting the streets are getting a more production than we are. Why do you feel that the standards are are much lower? Seemingly, much those standards are set um, so differently from other schools for the HSBCU schools. Well, okay, okay. Just say, for instance, like I said, we went to um, they got this uh, Hunt All Star Challenge uh, thing that they do every year with a lot of HBCUs, uh, and or and they got other things. They got other functions that they do. Well, we notice with other schools is that they're much more prepared. The, the, the standards are much more prepared. If you remember HBCUs back in when they first started out, uh, they used to have they uh, general graduation graduate pro, undergraduate program was equivalent to most PhD programs. Now they're the exact opposite. They're more of uh, just basic programs now. Uh, used to be in HBCUs you had to learn two languages. Most people that did their thesis to graduate did it either German, Latin, or Greek. Now that's not so. You only need one language. Uh, language is not is not a real tool. Now it's more remedial courses that they're teaching, which I, I understand why because it's more about money now than it was back then, back in the uh, 18, 1890s or 1901s and things like that. But we have to get back to the basis of why we had HBCUs and begin back get back to the root of really educating our, educating our people versus just getting them a degree. Because if you look at most HBCUs, if you actually look at the stats of those, most of kids cannot even do basic math even when they finish college. That's a crying shame. Right. So that's why I say that. I said we're not preparing them. And I, uh, and for instance, like we had a bank that told us, called it, and I went to a business school, and they just told us don't send, don't send nobody else because nobody in my class, other maybe five of us, could actually pass the math test to even go to work for the bank. And that's including that's include people that were seniors, and I was a freshman that year. So I think that's what we're selling at. We need to actually get more back into education and get, get and, and stop playing. That's what we've been doing for the last, I think, last 40 years is playing around. And not all well, of us, but I think majority I, of us. I agree. Anything, Rodney and Sarah, I agree. Great points, Carla. Thank you. Any Anything from you all? We have about 10 minutes to go, um, and then we have another caller as well, 571. Uh, thank you for hanging, and we'll get to you in just a second. If Sarah doesn't have a comment, let's take the other caller and then um, I'll, I'll, I'll make a comment after that. But I, um, you know me, Sarah, I'm all about the callers and, and the questions and the comments, exactly. so I'll, I'll, I'll say my responses to the end. Go ahead, Sarah. I think we'll take the other caller. 
Okay, and thank you again, Carla, for my 501. Thank you for hanging on so long, and you made some great and valid points. And just stay on with us, and we'll be doing this uh, shows like this every Tuesday. So thank you again. All right, no problem. All right, anytime. Thank you. Okay, we're going to pull in our caller from 571 area code with the last four digits of 7889. Caller, you're on the air with us. Good evening. Um, I wanted to address Sarah, and I wanted to say um, thank you for making a stand. Um, As a young educator, I commend you for um, what you're trying to do. And as a a 20-year veteran in the teaching field and also as a white woman, and I I understand your... um, it, uh, how, how do I want to put it? The not knowing what the right, thing, not not knowing what the right thing is to say or to do. And I know there was a comment made earlier about not seeing in color, but I truly do not see color in my students when they walk in the room. I don't even see gender. I don't look at them as I look at them as my students, as my children. And I always tell the parents at back to school night, they're mine from the time they walked in my door until they leave. And I've gone to every graduation since um, I've been in Virginia teaching for my kids from, I teach sixth grade. So I've gone to all of their graduations and I keep track with some of them even after they graduate. So many of them, it it doesn't just end with what happens in my classroom. And And it's all colors, both genders, it doesn't matter. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Uh, no, I was just thanking our caller. Go ahead. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, I was, I was going to say thank you as well. Um, Cindy, are you still there? Yes, I am. Um, thank you so much for calling in. Um, I will say, Tammy, as said, Cindy is one of the teachers that I have had the pleasure of working with. Um, Sarah, she she's a science teacher just like you, um, so you both have the same passion when it comes to uh, subject matter and content. But Cindy is a teacher that I have always respected. Um, she she is one of the, the the few teachers that 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 goes out of her, out of her way um, to make sure that her children are getting what they need, not only in the classroom but even once they leave the classroom. And it is very difficult, just like we said a few minutes ago. It is very difficult for. Um, non-black, non-Hispanic, or any other um, race other than than minorities to uh, take on the the teaching profession. But she is one person that I have seen, um, you know, just just take it on, and she has done extremely well. Um, And I... And, and I and I hope that you know she 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 doesn't get mad at me about this, but Cindy, um, I remember just a couple of years ago, um, 
she had a student who had an unfortunate um, incident, and the parents reached out to her um, to speak at this at this child's funeral because of the relationship that she had with this child. And I think that just speaks volumes to what anyone can do when you are in the profession for the right reasons. And, you know, and I think I even said to her today that Sarah reminds me so much of Cindy when it comes to just having a passion when it comes to education, having a passion when it comes to, to children and their well-being. And so race, gender has nothing to do with it. If you are serious about what we do every single day, and please don't misunderstand it, teaching is not a uh, nine-to-five, Monday through Friday job. Our contract may say 200 days a year, but we, te- we, we are teachers 365 days a year. And just in the short time I've known Sarah and, and the years I've known Cindy, um, you two definitely um, represent what we stand for each and every day. Well, thank you so much, Rodney. But for those of you listening, I put Rodney up on that pedestal as well because he is an excellent teacher. And I was just looking at my movie from last year that I make every year, and one of the students we shared, Cepriano, I found a wonderful picture of him and (laughs) kept thinking of how when you were out, he would automatically come to my room. (laughs) It was a student we shared that he was a little troubled, but... I really enjoyed his company in my room when Rodney would be out. <laughs> it's a long story, but um, thank you, Rodney. Thank you, thank you so much for calling in, Cindy. Uh, Cindy, I know we only have a. Well, I want to say real quick, real quick, if you don't mind, for those people who are in our chat line, if you, because we can go over. It's just that the people who are listening on by by chat and. Um, through Facebook, you'll need to dial in at 818-691-7406, 818-691-7406, really quick in order to get in, in case we go over a few minutes. So do that now if you want to continue listening. Sorry, Ryan, I just wanted to get those in so that they could call in now and not miss it. No, that 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 is fine. Uh, Sarah, is there anything there you would like to say uh, before we uh, get to the conclusion of the show? No, I just want to thank everybody for the support and the interest. And I never thought when I wrote that email that it would, I would have so many people that rallied behind students that they didn't know and public education that they may or may not be involved in. And it's just refreshing to end the year on this note. Wow. Well, um, Sandy, you want to go ahead, and um, I can I, I can kind of close out if you want me to. Yes, please please do. I want to thank everybody for for tuning in, Sarah. Again, thank you all our callers. Great, just 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 I can't get the words out. Wonderful show, <laughs> and 
I'm just excited because this is what we need. Um, Sarah, thank you again for writing the letter, for stepping out on that bridge and just taking that chance, that opportunity. So you set the stage for tonight's show. Thank you. Thanks to all our callers. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I'll go ahead and close out the show. Sarah, uh, do not go anywhere. Um, but I wanted to read this. Um, again, I won't mention any names, but it says, I agree with Leon um, about HB, HBCUs, and it is scary that our colleges are not um, taken seriously. I would be afraid to send my kids to an HBCU for that very reason. When I decided to go to college at the age of 50, to get my bachelor's degree, and now my master's, I didn't want to go for that reason. And the, accredit, uh, it, the accreditation um, issues. Um, so we have to have you back on um, because we have generated so much uh, interest just by this show, and, and, and we've been doing this series for about a month now, but um, so many people have been blessed um, and touched by your your story, by your boldness, by your willingness to, to stand up for not only yourself but for other teachers um, in North Carolina and around the United States, but most importantly for your students. And if your students can see that the lawmakers, the people making the decisions, who sit behind the desk somewhere and we don't even really know where they are, if your students can see that those people don't really take our profession seriously, then we are indeed in trouble. And because of that, we need for you to continue the fight that you have started down in Charlotte, North Carolina. We don't want you to, to leave our profession, although it was highly recommended by <laughs> Mr. David Curtis. <laughs> we do not want you to leave our profession because, sadly, we lose a lot of teachers because of the... Uh, the things that we have to put up with. But please, 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 as a fellow six-year teacher, stay in our profession because we definitely need you. Whether they give you 190 students or 1,190 students, please stay in the classroom. Oh, they won't get rid of me that easily. <laughs> and, to all of, and to all of the listeners, to all of the teachers, um, one other thing I will share is that, uh, going back to what Tammy said, even if your children are no longer in school, someone made the comment to me um, through Facebook, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your nieces, nephews, someone that you know is a part of public education. Despite does not end with this show. However, it does begin 
and continue. To all of you who have listened throughout the country, we say good night, and we hope that you will tune in next week where we are going to talk about the whistleblower at the University of North Carolina. And we believe we have a special guest who is a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So please join us next Tuesday, sir. If you can, please join us next Tuesday. And we are going to continue to fight for our profession, for our teachers, and for our children. To all of you who have joined us, have a great night. And, Tammy, I'll leave the last words up to you. Um, Just want to thank everyone again. Remember to register as a follower of the Butterfly Evolution Show. We're on Monday, every Monday, and every Tuesday night now, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time. Register as a follower so that you can keep up with the show topics. If you have any suggestions for topics going forward, please um, send it through Facebook or email right through the uh, Butterfly Evolution site, which is butterflyevolution.org butterflyevolution.org or Tammy Gator on Facebook. Thank you all for tuning in with us tonight. Sarah, thank you. Thanks to all of our teachers. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you all of our teachers. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. feels perfect, other days it just ain't working, the good, the bad, the right, the wrong, and everything in between, yo it's crazy, amazing, we can turn our hearts through the words we say, mountains crumble with every syllable, hope can live or die, so speak life.
But I know 